Welcome to Seymour, podcast about movies and TV. I'm Juan Gonzalez, and you already know this is a special episode. And I know that I say that just about every week at this point, but this is really a special one because it's our season one finale. Now, the show's going to take like a brief vacation during the summer, and it'll be back for the fall where we can cover like Oscar season and we can do holiday movies. That'll be fun. Yeah. I mean, we'll definitely do like a Halloween theme, Christmas themed episode. It'll be great. All that jazz. There's plenty of excitement to come. So for those of you who have listened to my voice for 20 weeks, thank you so much. It really means the world to me. And during this break, I'm going to try to work diligently on how to improve the show for season two. I can't believe we've done 20 of these and I'm just extremely excited to talk about today's episode which will be appreciating Stranger Things for not being a complete hack job. I mean, that's one that that show could have very easily have been a hack job if helmed by the wrong folks. I feel like there's an alternate timeline somewhere where Stranger Things is as popular as it is and hits the same beats that it does, but is far inferior because the priorities were solely to cash grab on nostalgia, and now while I know the show's intention is to make money, like they all are, Stranger Things is infused with a healthy dose of care that spans its characters, the story, and even the score. So Stranger Things is the Netflix show created by Matt Duffer and Ross Duffer, also known as the Duffer Brothers, and stars Millie Bobby Brown, Finn Wolfhard, Winona Ryder, David Harbour, and so many more. It's been nominated for over 160 awards and has won 52 of them, including multiple Emmys. So we have a lot of ground to cover this episode. So unlike previous episodes, I'll be addressing this topic with the assumption that you know what Stranger Things is or that you've watched a couple of episodes. There's no getting around how big this show has become. In fact, season two premiered with a completely different original Netflix show called Beyond Stranger Things a talk show about each episode and chronicling the production of season two. So I definitely recommend checking that out if you want to learn more about the behind the scenes. It's a lot of fun and Jim Rash hosts and he's always great. So I say all of this to say that a lot has been written about the show. So I approach this episode with the perspective of what appealed to me, why I continue to watch the show and what I'm excited for season three. There will be some very vague spoilers because we'll be covering both season one and two. So by nature, you might get a sense of what did or didn't occur during each season. So with all of that being said, let's get right to it. You know, we joked around that I should have titled the episode Stranger Things, Not a Hack Job. And I think the joke was how accurate that title would have been for this episode. Now, the show has all of the elements of a potential hack job, drawing inspiration from nostalgic and critically beloved IP, premiering at a time when 80s nostalgia was on the come up in modern culture or in pop culture, and on one of the hottest platforms, by the way, Netflix, and focusing on classic character archetypes. So Steve, the bully, the Nerdy Boys Club, Jonathan the Weirdo, the Alcoholic, Nothing Bad Ever Happens in This Town Cop, Nancy's Climb to the Popular Click, 
and their take on the classic alien disguised as a human slash fish out of water trope slash just E.T. But it eventually strays from these cliches in a subtle way while keeping the comfort that comes with these familiar character types. So this will be a recurring theme on this episode. Familiar, but different. Speaking of, let's talk characters. So just a heads up, I'm not going to touch on every character. There are a lot of them. Uh, This show about the monster isn't really about the monster and knows that in order for us to be afraid of the monster, there need to be stakes. And those stakes are, well, geez, I, I hope this person I like doesn't die because I care about them. Oh, if only all monster movies did this. Stranger Things operates like a smaller show in that the characters come before the spectacle. And before anything, really. We're seeing that while the scale of the show is increasingly growing, the jump from season one to season two was quite large, and I'll admit it was certainly a bit jarring at first. Uh, The character development continues to be the through line. I was quickly reassured that the fiber of what made season one feel very personable was in the show's relentless pursuit of trying to make us care about these characters and the relationships they have with each other. Despite the large scale CGI fog monster from season two, what was that? I don't, I know I'm already jumping all over the place. I'm starting at season two and yeah, this is, may seem a little unorganized, but it's a great representation of what works so well in season one and how effective the groundwork they laid was. Now, I generally don't like the structure of something is happening, this person is gone, let's make you care about them through flashbacks in the past, right? Like, I guess that's what flashbacks are in the past, but that was the general layout of Will's story in season one. Uh, the missing child, uh, you know, we're searching for him. And while we're searching for him, we're going to intermittently cut to a moment of how sweet he is. And, uh, you know, with the intention of making you care more. So the reason I don't like this story structure is because I feel like it's usually forced. It slows down the pace of the story. It takes away from the characters who are already far more developed than the missing person and that we've already invested in. This is a classic narrative structure. It's familiar. But season one does a great job in making us care about Will through the interactions with the rest of the kids. The dynamic of their relationship as we meet them, for the most part, is that we miss Will, right? So, different. We're killing two birds with one stone here. These flashbacks also add context to what the characters need to solve. So three birds with one stone. Overkill. We're murdering this bird. That's not even a stone at this point. We just threw a boulder at a flock. Um, Anyway, uh, while we're investing and learning about the kids, we're doing this through the lens of, geez, you know, they really cared about this Will kid. That Will kid must be great. So when we flash back, it's filling in the blanks as opposed to feeling like added fluff or like an obligatory pity scene. So while the premise of season one was that Will is missing. He gets to be a part of this crew for a good chunk of season two. So we're learning to care about him again, and not just through flashbacks this time like we did in the previous season. Uh, We're actually reintroduced to the character that we already care about, but under completely different circumstances. 
uh, he's like he's even weirder now, right? He's got some like weird connection with this monster, and this only further wrinkles the group dynamic, forcing all of the other characters to grow. So it's sort of this like tug of war of you know Mike is concerned about Will, so he's gonna spend more time with Will. That causes a riff with the other two. So you know there's a tug of war where one side's pulling and the other one's overcompensating, and it's just really good writing for ensemble pieces. So we see another familiar but different arc with Steve. He's the jock. He gets the good girl and he bullies the weirdo friend of the good girl. But he has a really late season one redemption arc that comes out of nowhere and seemingly comes out of nowhere. And he's redeemed and he keeps the girl. Wait, that last part was not supposed to happen. We see that again with Nancy. So take Nancy, said good girl who likes the jock gets the jock, finds out the jock and his friends are jerks, leaves the jock, but then stays with the jock. That also was not supposed to happen. Uh, Or Jonathan, the weirdo who loses his brother, likes the good girl Nancy, fights the jock Steve, and is there for the good girl when the jock isn't, but still doesn't get the girl. So he, he actually, he also kicks the jock's ass, if I remember correctly, which is also weird. And kind of defies that trope. But then again, everyone kicks Steve's ass, apparently. Uh, None of these things are supposed to happen because we're conditioned to believe that these classic tropes and characters will be rewarded for, you know, the moral compass that they've been on through the viewer's journey. So this absolutely defies our expectations. And the Duffer brothers use these familiar archetypes as a starting point follow them all the way through, and just before we hit the resolution we feel they deserve, they flip these characters' arcs on their heads in a way that doesn't feel cheap. What felt familiar now feels different, and if you don't believe me, I'm old enough to remember when uh, Nancy picked Steve in real time. You should have checked my Twitter feed because it was blowing up. Everybody was very disappointed. So it obviously triggered a reaction. So for some context, I should admit that this show should not have appealed to me at all. It has child actors and a monster in a small town. That was enough for me to be skeptical. But I enjoyed it because they continued to break cliches and classic archetypes. They approached each episode like a film in terms of their quality control and attention to detail. Uh, They got incredible performances out of these kids by just letting them be kids. And it made me care about the boring parental figures that often halt the action in these kinds of setups. So much like the characters in Harry Potter, not only do we see these young actors grow, voice cracking and all, we get to see their acting chops develop as well. And these are some talented kids. And they feel like kids, like real kids. It's very clear that they're friends off-camera that shows in their performance. A problem that series like these have is that I don't usually believe that the actors are the age that their characters are supposed to be. Uh, And these kids genuinely act the way that you think they would, which just adds to the level of immersion and creates for a far more dynamic interaction These characters act differently and responsively to whichever age group they're interacting with. When we buy who these archetypes are, suddenly the dialogue becomes incredibly dynamic. 
So the difference between one of the teens chatting with an adult or the kids talking to one of the teens or the teens talking with the kids or the adults talking to other adults about the kids while the kids are with the teens, it's, it's just a lot of fun to watch and it makes these relationships feel authentic because the characters don't talk like they would talk to each other, right? If the kids don't, you know, they speak to an adult or a cop differently than they would their peer. And I think that just adds to, again, just the realism. And from a narrative standpoint, it packs such a punch when the kids finally get on the same page as the adults. So when the adults like buy the craziness that's going on, or any of like the aha moments, they feel earned and rewarding as a viewer because of this. Let's talk about sound. So it was clearly important for the Duffer Brothers to have an originally familiar sound. So that same theme carries to the score, and probably in the most notable way, the now iconic opening theme sounds like several things that we think we've heard before, and it's really that authentic analog synth with a modern and epic Hans Zimmer Inception-esque melody that kind of amps us up for each episode. So the Duffer Brothers sought an electronic group by the name of Survive, led by Kyle Dixon and Michael Stein. Survive sound is comprised of that analog synth sound. It sounds grainy. It sounds 80s. It's a perfect fit for the show. So they brought those synths onto the show in a modern way, like whereas the band's tones are pretty dark and bold, uh, Dixon and Stein juxtapose those dark sounds with playful melodies to better match the show's aesthetic and its young cast. So it sounds like music that they would actually listen to. The same could be said about the grainy opening credits. That holds like a nostalgic VHS-like place in our hearts, but coupled with that original number and including an episode title at the end of it, like a mystery novel series would, it just feels right. Especially because a large demographic of the show, uh, um, the modern demographic, the most vocal demographic, wasn't born in the 80s. So this is something they've probably heard of uh, from like friends and families, seen popular 80s movies, and like the insight to this time period was art in film and music. So the show does a really good job of compiling that in a way that feels you know, nostalgic, familiar, but it hasn't been done with modern tech to this level that respects the artistic integrity of its inspirations. So it still feels different and fresh. And that was a smart move by the Duffer Brothers to invest in an original score instead of hitting us in the face with a bunch of 80s greatest hits, which they also did. And they did so far more prominently in season two when they could afford it. In some ways, it feels earned coming off of the success of season one to include so many popular songs in season two. And you know what? I expect to hear a lot more in season three. Speaking of season three, here are some of the aspects that I'm looking forward to. So I don't want the characters to just be older versions of themselves. I want to grow with them the same way that we have been up to this point. 
I want to see their group dynamics tested yet again. I want to see Eleven and Will be part of the journey, and I want them to all band together. Uh, I really want this to be an ensemble season, and I hope they don't all split off for episodes at a time. I also want Steve's character to continue to grow, and I need to buy Jonathan and Nancy's relationship. I know they're dating in real life, and I'd love to see that chemistry transition on screen, which just means I think I want to see more growth out of Jonathan's character. So whatever the monster is this time around, I'd like for them to continue with the tradition of there being a link between it and a central character, right? Like season one, uh, the monster in Eleven had a weird connection. Season two's fog thing was all up in Will's business. This adds to the stakes, and I hope we don't just get to the point where we have a monster that's just like trying to take over the world or something because that's lame. Let's keep it to Hawkins. Uh, let's keep it to something a little more personable. Keep the scale nice and tight. I feel like that's when the show works at its best. So this is going to sound like a weird one, but I also want to stay in Hawkins. Like smaller productions, I like the few sets that the characters operate in. In season one, it was just kind of Will's house, and it looks like it'll be a mall this time around. Uh, that seems to be like the central location. So I feel like it's a completely a completely appropriate evolution. Season two's primary location was hard to nail. Uh, it was pretty scattered. Like we were at the school, then Will's house, and then at a farm, and then underground, and then it was Halloween. Uh, and then wherever Eleven went for her standalone episode. I'd like to see them like rein it in a little bit. I think I just said that, but it's important to emphasize that here. Uh, and I'm sure they're going to destroy the heck out of that mall. And I hope that the Duffer brothers continue to destroy classic tropes and cliches as they have thus far. Classic tropes and archetypes aren't inherently a bad thing. They're classic because they've stood the test of time. They work. But in order for something to be uniquely its own, you have to add your own spin, your stamp that separates the story from the rest, right? Like Stranger Things was smart in using what we find comfort in as a base for the story they want to tell. They've roped us in. Now let's hope that they continue to evolve the story in ways that we could never imagine. All right, now let's do some quick trivia, run through a couple of these, some that I thought were a lot of fun. Uh, first one, Gatton Matarazzo, who plays Dustin, and I hope I pronounced that right, uh, was the first actor cast in the show. When listening to the theme song on Spotify, the album cover page turns to the upside down with the time bar turning into a flashlight pointing at the album cover. I actually remember that when it happened. That's a, that's a good one. Finn Wolfhard, uh, Mike, recorded his audition tape from his bed because he was sick. Chief Hopper's, uh, David Harbour's, trailer reportedly only cost the art department $1 to buy. That is a deal. Winona Ryder is admittedly a late bloomer in terms of electronic devices and supposedly did not know what streaming was when she was approached for the Netflix series. Gatton Matarazzo's, again, really hope I'm... Uh, his voice changed so much by the time production ended on season one that the sound team could not use him for like additional dialogue recording. Uh, Will, Noah Schnapp's character, is the only child in the series not to swear 
or curse throughout the entire series. That is why he is my favorite. The Duffer brothers originally wanted to direct the remake of Stephen King's It, but were turned down. Uh, Finn Wolfhard, who was always the first choice to play Mike, was already attached to play Richie in It. That came out in 2017. But at the time, there were production delays causing filming of that project to be pushed back a year, therefore making Wolfhard available to participate in both projects. So that really worked out. And I guess guess that kid's drawn to, uh, like, horror thrillers. Uh, Wow. That was this week's show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe. You can hear new episodes of Seymour every week on Tuesdays on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And remember, Seymour is just one of many shows that Cesspool has to offer. For more info, visit cesspoolnetwork.com to see our full weekly lineup or follow at Cesspool Network on Twitter and Instagram. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Juwan underscore chirps, on Instagram at Juwan underscore snaps, or follow what I watch on Letterboxd at Juwan Gonzalez. See you next week.